You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. Over the last nine months, our church, Sovereign Grace Church, has spent quite a lot of time preparing for the possibility that we would one day move into this building. Now that we're here, you may be wondering, what were we doing that entire nine months to prepare? After all, we don't have fancy new programs or signage on the walls or branding around the building. Uh, We don't have catchy names for our ministries or events lined up in 2020 or a roster of well-known speakers that are going to draw a crowd. We don't have any of that. So what were we doing in these nine months to prepare? Well, we were praying. We were praying. We believed that it was more important to prepare ourselves spiritually than it was to prepare ourselves practically. We focused on the posture of our hearts because we knew how rare this kind of opportunity is. This kind of thing doesn't happen every day. And it would be easy for it to go to our heads, for us to believe this lie that we had somehow figured out how to do church and now God was blessing us because we deserved it. But we all know what would have happened if we had given into that temptation or if we give into that temptation in the future. God would abandon us because God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. He is against those who boast in themselves, but he is for those who boast in Christ. And that's why we haven't spent these past several months planning programs, you know, focusing on the exterior while ignoring our hearts. We have spent these months praying. We've been praying for you our new friends who we've had a chance to connect with, whether you're a former member of Westside or Springdale or whether you are new to this building, you have some historical connection to this building in the past. We've been praying that that the Lord would bring about a unity among us quickly, a meeting of the minds and of the hearts as we get used to this new context. But we've also been praying for ourselves because we know how desperately we need the grace of God. And in our prayers, we have been guided again and again and again by God's word. I could give you many examples of how the scriptures have guided us, but the main story that I want to focus on today is the story of Ezra, because this is the story that has inspired the sermon series that we're going to begin today called Gospel Foundations, and that we'll be continuing over the next several months. Now, as many of you know, Um, Ezra is the story about the return of the Jewish exiles who were living in Babylon. They were exiled out of Jerusalem to Babylon. They returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and to rebuild the temple. You know, Jerusalem had been utterly destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. The walls were broken down, the palaces were burned with fire, and the people of Judah were sent into exile. But worst of all, As bad as those things were, the worst thing that happened was that the temple of God was completely destroyed. It was burned to the ground. Its temple, its foundation was destroyed. The temple, which was meant to be the unique dwelling place of God, 
where he manifested his presence among the nations was wiped off the face of the earth. But if history teaches us anything, it is that empires rise and empires fall. And it wasn't long before the Babylonian Empire fell to the Persian Empire. And under King Cyrus, he, uh, the Persians allowed 40,000 Jews to return from Babylon to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and to rebuild the temple. And so these 40,000 Jews return to Jerusalem. The first thing they do is they rebuild the altar where they offer sacrifices to God again in thanksgiving, offering sacrifices to God to atone for their sins. But then once they do that, the first thing that they do is they attend to the foundations of the temple. And that is because they knew that the city would be weak without the temple. And the temple would be weak without the foundation. And so they put all their effort, all their skill, and all their resources into relaying the temple's foundation. You think about all the things that they might have been tempted to do instead. You know, relaying a foundation isn't very exciting. I mean, who delights in pouring concrete? In those times, you know, they didn't have concrete. They would have been uh, building a foundation out of logs of, of wood, um, but again, a, a foundation lies under the ground. You know, once you, you cover it up with the building, it's no longer seen. You know, there's other things that they could have done. They could have uh, rebuilt their homes so that they could live in them again. They could have rebuilt the walls so that they would be protected from intruders. They could have rebuilt the palace so that they could have their own king again. But the one thing they chose above all these things was the foundation because they knew that the strength of a building lies in its foundation. If the foundation was strong, then the temple would be strong. And if the temple was strong, then the city would be strong as well. I believe that the Lord is calling us to relay the foundation of his temple here in Bradford. The difference between then and now, however, is that the temple is no longer a building. It's a people. We are not called to rebuild a physical structure. We are called to rebuild a community of believers who are devoted to knowing Christ and making Christ known among the nations. We are rebuilding the church, the redeemed people of God, saved by the blood of the Lamb and sent out to manifest the presence of God among the nations because we are God's temple. And the foundation of this temple isn't concrete or wood. The foundation is Christ and Christ alone. It is what Christ has done. It is who Christ is that we must build upon. You could say that the foundation of the church is, must be, the gospel. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, took on flesh, came into the world, lived a perfect life, fulfilling the law on our behalf and dying as our substitute on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins that all who call upon the name of the Lord could not only be forgiven but adopted as the sons and daughters of God himself. This is the foundation upon which the church must be built. It doesn't matter if you're talking about marriage, parenting, 
preaching, prayer, small groups, outreach, what we sing together on Sunday mornings, all of it must be built upon the foundation of the gospel, of who Christ is and what he has done to save us. If it is, we will stand strong. But if it isn't, then all that we build, all that we labor towards will vanish like dust in the wind. It's simple enough but it is so hard to implement. And that is why we are going to devote several months to this topic of gospel foundations. We're gonna labor like the returned exiles to Jerusalem, devoting all of our strength, resources, and skill to relay a gospel foundation in this new community. We're gonna study what the Bible teaches about preaching, about parenting, about marriage, and root it all in the foundation of the gospel. We're going to study how the gospel shapes everything we are and everything that we do, from the way that we reach out to the community to the way that we treat one another here as a community of faith. That's what it will take to relay a gospel foundation. And as we do so, my expectation is that this experience, this journey together, this co-laboring together will be one that is full of joy. Because that's how the Jews responded when the, tempta- when the foundation was finally laid. Ezra chapter 3 says this, And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, it's just the foundation, you know, it's a hole in the ground full of wood. The priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Now if they rejoiced at the rebuilding of the temple, how much more should we rejoice at the rebuilding of the church? That temple that stood in Jerusalem was only a shadow of the true temple, which is the church, the redeemed people of God. We have so much more reason to rejoice in what God is doing in laying a foundation for his temple on this side of the cross because we see the fullness of what Christ has accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection to restore, to purchase, and to send out a people for himself. The book of Ezra teaches us that this will be a joyful process, but it also teaches us something else. Uh, Later on in chapter three of Ezra, uh, it says this, but many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy. We should not be surprised, my friends, if there is some grief mixed with the joy, because some of you have seen the first house. You were here when Springdale was flourishing and growing, when this sanctuary was filled. I've seen the pictures. It was a beautiful sight. You had the first three rows of pews all across the sanctuary full of little kids. You saw that. You were here when this building was dedicated in 1998 to the glory of God. And many of you were here as the church withered away and crumbled because the foundation couldn't hold it up. 
Well, if that's you, I, I want to pause and acknowledge your grief and say, it's okay that you feel that way. Because churches aren't meant to die. The fact that churches die is a reminder that sin has infiltrated our world, including our churches. But the good news is that God specializes in bringing life out of death. That's what he did on the cross. It was the death of his son that brought not just life, but eternal life to countless people across the ages and around the world. It was his death that redeemed people who are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. God brings life out of death. And we see that on the cross, and we see that every time we meet here in this building, because the death of one church, by the grace of God, has given new opportunities for sovereign grace. And so every time we meet in this building, let us be reminded that God brings life out of death. We don't always know how, we don't always see how he's doing that, but we know that he will, because that is what he did through Jesus Christ. So as we begin this series on Gospel Foundations, we're gonna begin by looking at 1 Corinthians chapter three. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles. Um, we preach from the English Standard Version, the ESV. Uh, I know that the Pew Bibles are NIV. They are very similar translations. This is certainly not the BSV, the Bill Skolton version, which I heard a lot about at the funeral yesterday. Uh, I wish I could get a copy of that. Um, I will get a copy of that in heaven when I get to meet this dear saint myself and speak to him in person. But we'll be reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 to 17. If you don't have a Bible with you or if you want to follow the translation I'll be preaching off of, the sermon text is printed in your bulletin where you're uh, invited to follow along and take notes as you please. This is the passage in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul most clearly explains why the gospel must be the foundation of the church. Now these days, it's quite trendy to talk about the gospel-centered church. But it's one thing to say it, and it's another thing to do it. Being gospel-centered isn't just a tagline, it's not just a moniker to identify what tribe we're in, it is a way of doing church. It's not just what we preach about, it's how we live, it's how we interact with one another. Gospel-centered is the only way, in my opinion, and I believe what the Bible teaches, it's the only way to truly do church in a biblically faithful way. And as we look at this passage, my hope is that we would all be convinced of the same thing, that this church, if it is to be built, and if it is to remain, if it is to become strong, it must be built on the gospel. So let's read our text together. Um, uh, I'll, I don't want to mislead anyone. I'll read, you listen, so we're not going to read it together that way. Um, but uh, let's follow along, please, uh, in your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 to 17. This is the word of the Lord. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh 
and behaving only in a human way. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. The title of this sermon is Building the Church on a Gospel Foundation. Building the Church on a Gospel Foundation. We're going to have three points today. First, the foundation. Second, the builders. And third, the building. The foundation, the builders, and the building. Let's begin by looking at the foundation. Now, Paul begins our text today, he begins chapter three with a stern rebuke. In verse one, he says, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Paul is making it clear to us and to the Corinthian readers that he believes that he is addressing immature Christians. They were believers who should have been more mature, but weren't. And because of that, Paul had to return to the first principles of the Christian faith, what he calls the milk. The, the, the infants need the milk, and as they grow, they get more content. But if they're not growing, then they need to be treated like infants. He calls them people of the flesh. And he contrasts that with the people of the spirit, the spiritual people. In Paul's thinking, there, there really are two types of people. There are people of the flesh, and there are people of the spirit. And if we read chapter 2, which we're not going to do, but I invite you to do that at home if you'd like, People of the Spirit are those who have been taught and transformed by the Holy Spirit. You know, spiritual people, we tend to think in our cultural lingo, those are the people who like read the stars and they're into astrology or like they're meditating in their yoga classes. Oh, you know, we're all very spiritual. The biblical definition of a spiritual person is one who has been touched by the Spirit. Okay, so let's not miss that. Spiritual people are taught and transformed by the Holy Spirit to understand, believe, and live by the gospel. That wasn't true of the Corinthians, at least not in full. Now, we know that they had some of the Spirit because in verse 1, Paul refers to them as infants in Christ. 
They are truly Christians. And if they're Christians, then we know that the Spirit has worked in them because only the Spirit can give the gift of regeneration. They have been touched by the Spirit, but they have not yet been filled with the Spirit because Paul observes their lives and he sees that the Spirit has not yet transformed them into truly devoted followers of Christ, into truly spiritual people. And why was that? What did Paul see in their lives that led him to that conclusion? Well, verse three. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? In other words, they didn't like each other. They were a divided church. They were jealous of each other. They were experiencing strife with one another. They were arguing with each other. Their relationships were characterized by conflict rather than the mutual love and encouragement that is meant to define the people of God. Now, this is so important because it shows us, listen, it shows us that the mark of spiritual maturity isn't the amount of theology that you know, isn't the number of ministries that you serve in, isn't in the amount of money that you give to the church. The mark of spiritual maturity is peace in your relationships with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. That is the litmus test for true spiritual maturity. So, if you're here today and you're not getting along very well with your spouse or you're harboring bitterness in your heart towards those who have offended you or you are constantly thinking bad thoughts about those who are around you, you are not a spiritual person. It doesn't matter if you did your devos today. It doesn't matter if you are a faithful Sunday service attending believer. You are a person of the flesh. And the remedy isn't just, well, try harder. You know, work on your marriage. Forgive people. I mean, those are things that we need to do. But the remedy is ultimately, you need to seek the Spirit. The only way to become a spiritual person is to be touched by the Holy Spirit. You need to learn to forgive. You need to learn to love. You need to learn to reconcile. But the only way that all that is possible is through the Holy Spirit. Now, there are so many things that divide us, so many things that manifest that we are still people of the flesh rather than spiritual people. Well, the thing that divided the Corinthian church, Paul explains in verse four, for when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Now, that, that should strike us. I mean, I... I it's striking that Paul is saying, aren't you being merely human? I'm like, of course, Paul, that's what we are. We're human. You know, what do you expect of us? I mean, we are what we are. We're gonna do uh, you know, human kinds of things. Uh, how can you say, how can you criticize us for being merely human? But what Paul is doing here is he's, he's saying, I expect more of you as people who have tasted the supernatural power and presence of the Spirit, as people who have believed in the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ, I hold you to a higher standard than I do to the world around you. People outside the church might divide, but people in the church must not, because one Spirit is making one church for the one God of our salvation. But divide they did. Some were saying, I follow Paul Others are saying, I follow Apollos. 
If you read chapter one, Paul says others were saying, I follow Peter, and others are saying, well, I follow Christ. You know, wh- why were they all doing that? Because you think about it, all these people are well-known figures in the New Testament. We know that they were all teaching the same thing. They were all teaching the same gospel. They were all committed to the same doctrine. The one difference between them wasn't the doctrine. It was their style. And it was over these differing styles that the Corinthian church was dividing over. It's like, um, you know, you might have one person speak with a lot of passion and you, and you say, well, I really like that style. You know, that's my favorite preacher. I love listening to that person. And another person comes up and, and uh, preaches the same gospel, but it's not as engaging. And you're just like, oh, that's kind of boring. You know, I, I follow that guy, not that guy. It's reflected in our podcasts, you know, in our Twitter feeds. We follow the people we, we, where we like their style, uh, even though you know, those who don't have the same style are giving you the same content. So that what the Corinthians were doing is that they were choosing form over substance. You could say that they were choosing the garnish over the main course. Now, we know what that's like. It happens every time a church divides over a so-called worship war, over the style of music. I've heard churches divide over the color of the carpets. I've heard of churches that divide, as I've already mentioned, over the preaching style of the pastor. These are divisions of form over substance. And divisions of form over substance mark people of the flesh and not people of the spirit because spiritual people are called to a higher standard. Now, don't get me wrong, there are times to divide. There are times to divide. You know, Pastor Ken reminded us last Sunday of what Paul teaches in Galatians. He says, if I or an angel from heaven preaches to you a different gospel, let him be cursed. Don't have anything to do with me if I abandon the orthodox teaching of the gospel. There are times to divide. But when we divide over secondary matters like music or carpets or styles, we've actually shown that we have begun to prioritize something other than the gospel. We have prioritized form over substance. That's what the Corinthians were doing. And uh, that's what Paul addresses in chapter two, where he reminds them of his own lack of form in chapter two, verses one to two. He says, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. That's the, that's the form. I didn't have a fancy form. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul's saying, don't you, don't you remember me? Do you remember how I was when I was among you, how I preached, how I taught? It wasn't fancy. It was simple. I just kept pointing you to Jesus Christ and him crucified. Don't move on from that. This is of primary importance. As you'll say later in chapter 15, this is of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Jesus Christ is the only foundation upon which the church can be built. That's what he's getting at in verse 11. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Christ is our sure and steady foundation and the only foundation upon which the church can be built. Who he is, what he has done. 
his person and his work, his eternal deity and his earthly humility as he took on flesh and suffered on the cross for sinners. Now, this may sound elementary and basic, and on one level, it's meant to be. I mean, Paul's giving them milk, not solid food, because they weren't yet spiritual people. But if the church is to be built on solid ground, then we need to get the foundation right. Because if you don't get the foundation right, then the building's gonna crumble. Now, there are many counterfeit foundations out there. You could probably think of some yourselves, but let me give you two of them. I remember when I first started attending Sovereign Grace about 12 years ago, I was uh, a first-year law student at Osgoode Hall Law School, and uh, I ended up at this church because I had a classmate in law school who was a lapsed Christian, you know, one of these prodigals that I was talking about earlier, you know, grew up in the church, still believed that Jesus died for his sins, but, but hadn't been to church for a long time. And he knew that he wasn't living as a Christian. Well, we started doing a Bible study together in my little apartment, and uh, he decided he wanted to go to church again. And uh, the, the church that a family member recommended to him was Sovereign Grace. And so I accompanied him. I wanted to support him in his return to the Lord. And uh, I remember, uh, I mean, he ended up not coming back. I ended up not leaving. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm so thankful that the Lord used him, my friend, to lead me to this church. But I remember when I would sit through the services and I would participate in the congregational singing, and, uh, and, and, and I distinctly remember the thought running through my mind as we, we kept singing songs about Jesus dying on the cross, atoning for our sins, you know, offering us forgiveness. I'm like, is this all these people sing about? You know, when are we gonna get to the weightier things of like social justice, of like caring for the poor. You know, I want to sing about what we are going to do in this, in this world rather than keep singing about what Christ has done, you know, 2,000 years ago. Well, that, my friends, is the way that the winds of our culture are blowing. Churches are being tempted to start building on a foundation other than Christ. You could call it a foundation of social justice or good works. It's a different foundation, It's not that serving a poor is a bad thing. It's an eminently good thing. But if a church starts building its identity on pursuits like that, then it's not a church anymore. A church must be rooted in Christ. And all the good works that we do are an overflow of who we are in Christ and what we believe that Christ has done. Here's another counterfeit foundation. You could call it the foundation of a shared moral standard. A group of people could say that they're a church because they believe the same things about sexuality, about marriage, about materialism, or the sanctity of life. Or in the States, you could say, you know, churches gather together because they're similar political leanings. Those are false counterfeit foundations. Churches should have shared moral standards. We should. But if those standards serve as the reason for why we rally together, the basis of our communal identity, then we're not a church anymore. There's another name for it. It's a morality club. That's not what the church is meant to be. That's what the Pharisees were. They were a morality club. They taught the law without grace, morals without reference to the moral law giver. And because of that, when 
The Son of God himself was right there in front of them. They didn't recognize him. They rejected him and they crucified him. Morality itself cannot be the reason why we gather together as a church. It must be the gospel. If our morality does not grow from the soil of the gospel, then it's only a matter of time before we become Pharisees. We need the gospel. In one of the most memorable sermons I've heard recently, the dean of the Sovereign Grace Pastors College, Jeff Perswell, he preached this at our annual pastors conference last year. He put it this way, and I encourage you to to write this on your hearts. The gospel isn't merely the message we proclaim. It's the reality that shapes our existence. The gospel isn't merely the message we proclaim. It is the reality that shapes our existence. Building a church on a gospel foundation means that the gospel must inform what we do, how we do it, why we do it, from serving the poor to holding on to biblical morals. Christ and Christ alone must be our foundation if we are to be a faithful church. But how do we do that? How do we lay a gospel foundation and how do we build on that foundation carefully so that we, you know, what we build on it doesn't get consumed on the day of judgment? Well, in order to build something, you need builders, which leads to our second point, the builders. And these next two points will be shorter than the first because I really wanted to emphasize the foundation. Now, Paul talks about two kinds of builders in verse 10. He talks about the master builder who laid the foundation, which is, of course, a reference to himself. And then there's the someone else who is building on the foundation, which is the Corinthian church. Now, notice that both roles, laying the foundation and building on the foundation, require skill. Referencing himself, he calls himself a skilled master builder. He's not being haphazard. You know, he is training, he is being very careful, he is doing so skillfully. And he implies that those who build on the foundation require the same level of skill when he writes, let each one take care how he builds upon it. We must be careful how we build. In other words, building a church on the foundation of Christ isn't as easy as it sounds. I mean, I'm I'm talking about it, and it's easy to talk about it, but, but how do we do it in reality? That's a different question. That's a different level of difficulty. Building the foundation on Christ requires skill. It requires theological skill. It requires pastoral skill. It requires skill on the part of the elders and the congregation as we co-labor together in building the foundation. Now, at this point, I want to pause and give thanks for the rare gift that God has given to our church in giving us a skilled master builder. I'm not talking about myself. You know, in 2004, when our church began, I was still a rebellious teenager in high school. The man that God used to skillfully lay a foundation on the gospel is sitting right there, Pastor Tim Kerr. When he started our church in 2004, along with a handful of families, he did so with an unrelenting focus on the gospel not just in doctrine, but in practice, not just in what we teach, but in what we do. We learned what it meant 
for our marriages to be gospel-centered. We learned what it meant to resolve conflict, to forgive one another because God has forgiven us in Christ. Pastor Tim has taught us what it meant to not only believe the gospel, but to let the gospel shape our existence. And it was all this teaching, all this skilled master building that has shaped us into who we are today. If it wasn't for his skill and for the ways that the Lord used his skill, I would not be the pastor I am today. I would not be the husband or the man I am today. I would probably be on some social justice crusade thinking that I'm doing church when in reality I'm building on a very different foundation, a foundation that would crumble with time. But because of the grace given to Pastor Tim and to all those pioneering families in the early years, we have a church where the aroma of the gospel fills the very air that we breathe. Now the task that lies before us now is to carry on that work, to take care in how we build upon this foundation. We are to reinforce that foundation as we settle into life in Bradford. We're to expand the foundation to include those who desire to join our church. And we are to build upon the foundation with great care because no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. But listen, you know, lest we make too much of ourselves, we must be reminded that all the skill in the world won't matter if God isn't in it. One of my favorite psalms, I've been meditating on this often, Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, its builders, its laborers build in vain. The Lord needs to build the house. That's what Paul is saying in verses six and seven. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Paul's saying in the same breath, I was laboring as a skilled master builder, but also I am nothing. This church that exists on the foundation of the gospel, it's not my own doing. Any growth that happened in this church happened because God was at work. The only one who can truly lay a solid foundation and build on that foundation is God himself. And that means that none of us, including the people who lead up front, including me, are ultimately nothing. None of us really matter. The only one who is anything is God. We are nothing, we are servants who plant and water, but we have absolutely no power to give the growth. Only God can give the growth. We cannot miss this because I fear that many churches in this day and age have gotten this wrong. We live in a time when churches revolve around the personality of exceptionally gifted individuals. You could call it, you could call it celebrity, celebrity church culture. We talk about this person's church or that person's church as if they were the ones to credit for the way that the church has grown or the way that the church has expanded its influence. I've even heard one former megachurch pastor call himself the brand of the church. But the church was never meant to be about a personality on a stage. The church was always meant to be about a person on a cross. And that means that if any of the words that come out of my mouth 
or any of the songs that our worship teams lead us into lead to spiritual growth in your life, that's because God was at work. That's an act of his grace and not because of our skill. And so I don't call this my pulpit. It's not my pulpit. It's God's pulpit, and I'm eager to share it with other servants who plant in water, because we are all one. And none of us are anything except God who gives the growth. I am not the brand. And thank God that that's not true, that I am not the brand. Because if you were building on my personality, you'd be sorely disappointed. I mean, I'm a, I'm a Star Wars nerd. I'm a... I'm a recovering lawyer, you know, I, I, I just, I don't, I don't have strength of personality to carry this church. I am not the brand, and Sovereign Grace is not the brand. God is the identity of this church. He gives the growth, he sustains it through the years. The identity of this church must never rest on a single individual or a group of people. It must rest on our triune God. As God the Father builds the foundation on God the Son through the work of God the Holy Spirit. So much for the builders. We've addressed the foundation, the builders. Lastly, we addressed the building and more quickly. Now we know that the Jews were building a physical structure, a physical structure in the Middle East, a city called Jerusalem. We are here to build a people. Verse 16 says that we are God's temple now. We are the dwelling place for God's spirit. And that means that what we do as a church only matters to the extent that we help people grow spiritually. Our task isn't to expand our programs. Our task isn't to one day become a multi-site church. Our task isn't to gain all the right press clippings in the media or in social media. We have one goal, to turn people of the flesh into people of the spirit. Jesus calls them disciples. I mean, Paul calls them spiritual people. They're really the same things. Disciples of Christ are people who are filled with the spirit, increasingly transformed into his image by the indwelling presence of the spirit in them. If we fail to do this, then it doesn't matter how many programs we run or how many events we put on for the community or how large our budget becomes, even if we ran the slickest operation they could ever imagine. If there was division bubbling below the surface, then all of it's for nothing. If we fill this room with people and put on a big production each Sunday, but underneath it all is jealousy and strife, then we're not building the church anymore. We're building some human institution of our own creation that we can build with our own skill, but it won't survive the day of judgment. The day is coming when all of our work will be tested. Verse 13 says that our work will be tested by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If our work survives, by God's grace, we will receive a reward, but if it's burned up, we will suffer the loss of having devoted our lives for nothing. Jeff Perswell again puts it this way. The church is not our playhouse. It is God's temple. Disunity is desecration. So be careful. Building God's temple and building foundation under it means building God's people. 
And building God's people means building unity that centers around the gospel. There is no other way for a church to be built. So let me end with three brief points of application. First, I encourage you to be present, to be present, simple enough. But the only way to truly come along with us in this journey of rebuilding the foundations of the temple is to prioritize our Sunday gatherings. I mean, I wish we could all prioritize all the corporate meetings that we have in our church, like our pre-service prayer meetings, our prayer meetings on Wednesdays, our tags. But if you can only prioritize one, we prioritize the Sunday gathering. And it's a little sad that I feel like I have to say this, but we live in a day and age when regular church going seems like a relic of the past. Because there are so many more things for us to do on the weekends. There are sport events to watch. There are things that we need to take our kids to. There are vacations to go on. So is it really fair to expect people to go to church every Sunday? Isn't that legalistic, one might say? Well, it would be legalistic if you were going to church every Sunday in order to gain favor with God. You know, I go to church on Sunday, every Sunday, so God owes me blessing. God owes me safety in my life. God owes me what I've been asking him for. That's legalism. Or it's legalism if we go to church so that we can feel better about ourselves, more self-righteous, we can look down on those who are farther from God. But we're actually the ones who are far from God. But if you prioritize going to church every Sunday because you know it's good for your soul, that's the simple reason why you say, I, I want to be there on Sunday because I'm fed there. I'm growing spiritually. And even when I don't feel like going, I am going to go because I need to eat. My soul is famished, and I need someone to feed me. I need people to pray for me. I need saints to exhort me and encourage me. Then prioritizing going to church every Sunday isn't legalism, it's wisdom. It's wisdom. The only way for us to rebuild the foundations of the church on the gospel is if we do it together. So come and join us every Sunday as we seek to do exactly that. Second, I encourage you to read. I encourage you to read. Read good books about the gospel-centered life. There are so many resources out there that are going to be so helpful for us. They've been helpful for us in the past, and they'll be helpful for us in the future. We need skill. We need skill if we are to lay the foundation and build on the foundation. And skill, as you know, comes from study. I mean, it comes from experience. You know, you got, you got to go and do it as well, but you got to study. You got to be taught. And what better teachers do we have than those saints who have gone before us, and perhaps some of them who are still living, who have written about this topic? We're not pioneers here. You know, we're not paving the way as these trailblazing pioneers. You know, we are rooting the church in what it has always been on the foundation of the gospel. In some ways, reading is becoming a lost art. You know, the problem isn't that people can't read, it's that people don't want to read. If you're anything like me, I can often feel like when the kids are in bed or after a long day of work, the last thing I want to do is use my mental abilities, what is left of them, to understand difficult logical propositions. I mean, that's hard. I mean, we'd rather just sit passively and receive entertainment, be wowed, and then go to sleep and do it all over again. 
But I have found, and I'm sure that many of you would agree, that reading can be one of the most fruitful activities that we can engage in, especially when we read about the Christian life. And so to help you start reading, what we're going to do is every month, we're going to feature one book, one book, just one book, short, simple books for the entire month, lay them out on the table and say, hey, this is the book we want to devote our month to. Let's read it. Let's study it. We don't have to do it together. You can read it by yourself. You can read it with your family. You can read it with some friends. We're just going to feature one book on the gospel-centered life. And, uh, and my hope is that if, as we do that, we're going to be guided by the saints of the past to learn how to do this with skill. Lastly, so we want you to be present. We want you to read. Lastly, we invite you to come pray with us. Come pray with us. We need the Lord to build this house because only God gives the growth. We need to pray. God moves when his people pray. We humble ourselves under his sovereign activity when we pray, when we cry out to him to build the house, to relay the foundation and to help us to persevere as a faithful church. This Wednesday, we have our midweek prayer meeting. And just so you know what it's like, it's almost like a midweek service. We'll spend some time singing, and we'll have some teaching, and the teaching will then guide our prayers. We want to pray for specific requests, if you have family members who are sick, etc. Um, but we primarily want to be guided in our prayers by what the Word of God teaches That's what we've been doing in the nine months preparing for this point and moving into this building. That's what we want to continue doing. We pray because we need the Lord. Prayer has always been a pillar of our church. And if our church is going to thrive and do well, it must remain so. And so we invite you to join us. And I've met many people over the years who have joined our church and said, how can I serve? You know, I want to I do this, I want to join this ministry. And I say often, the best thing you can do, my friend, in serving our church is to pray for us and to pray with us. So come, join us as we cry to the Lord because only he can give the growth. Only he can make this church built on the solid foundation of Christ and Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the instruction of your word, how counterintuitive it is to worldly people like us who are often more guided by the business world in building an institution than by the eternal word of God. And we pray for your help. We pray first for our hearts that we would desire to build on the foundation of the gospel. And then we pray for skill that you would help us to do that together with unity and love and wisdom. And we pray for your supernatural activity here at work, that you may give the growth that for decades and perhaps even generations to come, this place, this body of believers, our children, our children's children, would be devoted to Christ, would be building their lives, building their church on this solid foundation, Christ and Christ alone. We pray this and ask in Jesus' name, amen.